This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran continues to run high, in part due to the execution of a Shiite clerk on January the 2nd. Once again, tensions have more than just political overtones. Now diplomatic ties have been severed between the two sides, and it will put the United States in a unique position, since Secretary of State John Kerry recently said that sanctions against Iran should most likely be lifted. To take a look at the economic impacts of this relationship right now, we are joined by Brenda Schaefer, who is a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council, and also by Howard Pack, who's a Wharton Professor Emeritus of Economics and Public Policy. Brenda, Howard, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. Great to have you both. Uh, obviously, Brenda, the first thing that a lot of people think about when you when you talk about these two countries is the effect that it's going to have on on oil prices. But outside of oil, where where are the other areas to focus on? Well, first first thing in terms of the impact on oil, I, I would want to say, like in terms of the framework of how geopolitical events affect oil, that when we have a a tight oil market, meaning when supply and demand are really close, and geopolitical events tend to have have a a direct impact on the oil price. But when we have a very liquid oil market, like we have now, where there's a huge gap between the supply and demand, then geopolitical events, unless they affect the physical supply of oil, don't tend to have any, you know, more than a hiccup on 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 the on the oil price. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, first thing I think there's a huge emphasis on 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 you know a, a direct linkage, but there's only a linkage when the market conditions um, allow it. Um, in ter- in terms of the you know the wider the wider implications <clears throat> here, I think one. You know, we tend, when we look at the Middle East from, from Washington or from the United States, we tend to try to figure out what's the reason for the conflict. We look, you know, we try to find history or culture or, you know, leadership personalities and tend to look at this one as, oh, this is Shiite v, uh, versus Sunni. You know, somehow yeah. that kind of makes some sort of order for us. But actually, these are just two, uh, power, two countries that are neighbors, that are of similar power, that have different strategic orientation, Saudi Arabia towards the United States, um, Iran towards, uh, you know, anti-status quo, a rising power in the Middle East. And it's really not about what happened, uh, you know, you know four, four years ago in Karbala, but, 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 uh, but it's, it's really about just two strategic, you know, two strategic powers that are, that, that are neighbors. And I think that, um, you know, if we take the ideology, ideological framework out of it, it's a lot easier to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Howard? Well, I think the context, as Brenda says, is is pretty broad. And what I think is going on now, why this is erupted now, is that the U.S. has basically pivoted, as, as President Obama said, to the Far East. I don't see where the pivot is. But in any case, what has happened is that Saudi Arabia whose population may be 15 million, it's very inexact, and Iran's population is closer to 80 million. And Iran is arming itself to the teeth. And the assumption of the Saudis and the Gulf sheikdoms, who have now also broken relations with Iran, is that Saudi Arabia feels very vulnerable. And clearly, as a leading Sunni country, 
and fighting and supporting the anti-Assad forces in Syria. You're getting a, into a situation in which the Saudis feel desperate. They're not, they're weak. You know, they did not do well in the 1990 Gulf War. They ran away from the Iraqis, who were not a very formidable opponent at that point. And therefore, I think one is seeing a lot of uh, turmoil because of this fundamental sense of abandonment by the U.S. Now, the oil price implications are, as Brenda said, not very important. The the marginal cost of extracting oil in Saudi Arabia is perhaps 3 to $4 a barrel. So the entire, you know, the entire price structure has always been based on political considerations, and OPEC acted as long as it could as a cartel to keep the price up. That cartel is now clearly broken. Yeah. And with the addition of fracking, uh, from the U- especially from the U.S., oil prices, there's no, it's not clear what the bottom is. There's no way of modeling this because... Uh, we know that the bottom price could be as well as four or five dollars a barrel. So the price is basically a political price. But I think the reason for the immediate eruption this week uh, is the um, the Saudis being very upset by the Iranians being given a green light by the U.S. to both go ahead with nuclear development and the ICBM launchings, which the Obama administration, for reasons that are not quite apparent to most observers, uh, Obama administration is treating as a non-event. How does this affect, then, the the entities outside uh, of the Middle East with all of this going on right now, Howard? Well, I think what's happening is there are some lots of things going on. There are lots of balls in the air. China, which has been the locomotive of growth for the world economy, but especially for the developing countries. For example, Brazil or many of the African countries have been supplying primary commodities from from soybean oil to wood to many others and has lifted those economies a lot during the last 10 years. That game is over, which is one of the reasons that Brazil is having trouble, but so are the African countries having trouble. So it has little to do with the price of oil, but more immediately with the absence of demand for, with demand growth from China. And that combined with a very slow growth in Western European countries and not very robust growth in the U.S. is a recipe for economic um, hardship in many parts of the world, which is not going to be easy to rectify. Uh, Brenda, we, we talk about, obviously, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but uh, it, this obviously involves the, the whole region to some respects, doesn't it? Right. First thing, I'd like to okay. concur with Howard on the role of the United States in this in, in this uh, conflict breaking out, because... Uh, um, you know what, what do you need what, what do you need alliances for? We think we need alliances for just to deter or to fight with with other countries, but actually part of alliances is making sure actually that your your allies don't take uh, act, you know uh, um, action on their own and, and it's actually coordinated with you know with the superpower and so we have a situation now in the United States where I you know can completely concur with Howard here that um, countries like like Israel like Saudi Arabia not knowing how, you know how they can uh, you know adjust to 
to Iran, Iran's rising power, to its new use of arms, um, and start, instead of waiting for the signal from the United States or coordinating, they're actually you know acting out on on their own, and, and this is you know adding to the to the the, the, the danger level and the, the, the prospects for escalation uh, uh, in, in the region. Um, you know how is, how is this reverberating you know through, throughout the region? Um, you know, uh, uh, well, first thing, you know, Iran obviously is, is trying to activate um, Shiite populations uh, around the region, and, and this can bring to a lot of spillover. And, and you know, we, we, we basically have a situation where um, a proxy war has been taking place between Saudi Arabia and Iran in the, in, inside Yemen. I think that Iran has both a geopolitical and an oil interest to actually bring this instability into the domestic arena into Saudi Arabia. Um, and it might be done through a surrogate, you know, so it's deniable, deniable to, to Tehran, but, you know, through a Houthi or through a, uh, a Shia in, in, in Saudi Arabia, but, you know, something that would um, attack a major oil facility like we, we've seen before, um, uh, um, some, like the Elbekek, for instance, uh, f- uh, oil processing facility, it processes about half of the Saudi Arabian oil, uh, oil, oil exports. Um, we've seen Iranian cyber attacks before on Saudi Aramco, so even some sort of cyber event in in a, in a oil processing plant or um, or at a major port, um, this could this could at least you know it, it can't change the long term um, pr- price picture for oil, but it could set it up for a spike and at a time when Iranian oil is returning to the market. So you could see why Iran has a strong interest from both oil price perspective and from its competition with Saudi Arabia to to bring the conflict into Saudi Arabia itself and especially to the oil sector. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're uh, joined on the phone by Howard Pack, who's a Wharton Professor Emeritus of Economics and Public Policy. Also joining us, Brenda Schaefer, who is a senior fellow at the uh, Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942. 7866. Howard, in terms of, of, of global investing, how much does this tension, amongst the others that are, that are in the Middle East right now, how does it affect the markets around the globe? Well, there are two aspects of this. One is real investment, like building factories. And this kind of activity has been absent from the Arab countries. I wrote a book about four years ago, which documents that the Arab countries have been remarkably small recipients of foreign direct investment. Singapore, which has 3.5 million people, receives more FDI every year and has for the past 40 years that all the Arab countries put together. So, except for oil facilities, which don't count. I'm talking about things like manufacturing. In terms of financial flow, it works the other way. You have the sovereign wealth funds set up by the Arab countries to put away, in effect, in a savings account, their oil revenue. And and some of these are very large. And they basically buy European and U.S. real assets, such as factories, but for the most part... Uh, unfortunately for them, they've been buying U.S. Treasury bonds, which are you know quite safe but pay zero interest, more or less. And therefore, I don't think there has ever been much. Not I don't think I know there's never been much uh, transfer of monetary assets to the Arab countries in general. And by Arab countries, I'm going from conservatively from Morocco through to uh, Iraq and Iran. But I think the financial implications in terms of investment flows are really major.
minimal because they've been basically non-existent. The flows have gone out of the Middle East. Somebody will buy Harrods, apartment store in London, but there's uh, precious little investment going into the Middle East, you know, excluding the natural resource uh, Brenda, when when Secretary Kerry made his statements about Iran uh, uh, in the last several days, what was your reaction to to his, uh, I guess, basically his judgment on how far or how Iran had been coming uh, coming forth? Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I, I think it's um, I think there's a there's a problem in that you know, like sort of like the nego- negotiations 101. When you know that something is very important to your partner in negotiations, that yeah. they have to have it. You really have you know very little. Um, you know, you can get the deal you deal you want. So I mean, this is clear that the you know the Obama administration has decided you know their legacy issue is is the Iran deal, and then basically Iran um, can do whatever they want. We see it, you know, the missile testing, um, missiles coming you know within a thousand five hundred meters of of uh, U- U.S. military in, in the Gulf, um, havoc throughout the the Middle East and and uh, um, you know on, on on all of its borders, meddling whether it's in uh, meddling in Azerbaijan, meddling in in uh, uh, in Syria, in in Yemen, and and uh, um, uh, I, I, you know, I think I think basically because the administration wants this deal so bad, badly and to preserve it that you know, I mean, think about even the um, on the visa legislation. You know, that that Tehran is 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 trying to say that the U.S. Congress cannot pass uh, an, an exemption for for visa waiver to someone who's been to Iran, which is, when this is. I think I think it's the privy of the U.S. you know the U.S. Congress to decide how it views its threats and not sure. for Tehran to veto this, um, but I think it all the problems emanate from um, you know basically that, that that the U.S. you know just wants this deal to the administration just wants want it and, and wants to preserve this deal too badly. It, with with obviously we're talking about the fact that the U.S. is is a, is a, a piece to this puzzle, but. Uh, does at some point potentially Europe become a, a, a piece involved in this as well, Brenda? Um, well, yeah, you know, I th- well, I think you know, Europe, um, Europe in the good times is, is an important in terms of international policies, important in terms of uh, investments and um, economic programs. You know, but basically, when you have no militaries, it's very hard to think of them being a force that's connected to security uh, abroad. I mean, you know, basically. We're seeing in Europe that they can't even, you know, manage their own their own border security and and between. So I, I don't see them really having much uh, influence on security issues in in, in the Middle East. Howard, yeah, I agree completely, Brenda. I mean, it's good to remember that the U.S. position on Libya was to follow from behind, and what that really meant is. France and the other countries did not have enough forces to deal with basically a Bronx street gang, which was what <laughs> Libya was. So they had to call in reinforcements, also known as the U.S. Uh, leading from behind. It sounds a lot like World War uh, One and World War Two. I mean, the Europeans have been recently devoting one to two percent of their gross national product to defense, whereas the U.S. has at a much, much larger GNP has been devoted 4%. So the U.S., the Europeans have fundamentally no transport capacity. They cannot move 10 tanks at a time with cargo planes, and we can move a lot more than 10 tanks at a time. Yeah. 
So I think the Europeans are totally irrelevant. They believe, in, as Brenda said, in soft power, which is, you know, sort of convene conferences where good wine is served. Everybody, <laughs> everybody is very happy and congratulates each other for being part of the OECD, which is a rich country club. But as a for, even at NATO, the military arm of the Europeans is going to fall apart quite readily because... As Brenda said, they can't control their own borders. So how can yeah. they do anything outside where they have to actually project power and say move 400 tanks in two days? They sure. can't do it. Yeah. Howard, I got to be honest. I didn't expect the term Bronx Street Gang to be brought up in this conversation. But <laughs> you have for a minute there, I was thinking, are we talking about the Jets and the Sharks in the West Side Story? That's right. That's one of the great scores uh, of <laughs> Broadway theater. Um <laughs> Well, you mentioned OPEC, and obviously OPEC is certainly a much different organization than it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. In terms of how this all plays out and you know any potential effect that OPEC has, in terms of the entity that it is right now, what's the biggest challenge you see that OPEC has to deal with with what is going on right now? You know, I think that actually going back to, you know, Europe's relevance for security issues, I think it's the same thing, you know, OPEC's relevance for the energy market. We really have not adjusted to the fact that OPEC isn't OPEC. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm surprised, you know, looking at international media, you know, every, sort of the interpretation of this crisis between Saudi Arabia and Iran is like, wow, now OPEC won't be able to cooperate on a cut. Well, there, this was not in the cards. This was not, um, you know, there was no, it was unimaginable that Saudi Arabia would cut back uh, production in order to jack up prices so that as the Iranian oil comes in, Iran you know, can benefit from it, right? I mean, OPEC in its, in its heyday in the 1970s, it produced 60% of the a global market. And yeah. even then, the, the Arab oil boycott, you know, in the end of the day, who lost most out of the boycott was, was actually the producers themselves. Because yes, it, it caused a, a price increase in, in, the, in the 1970s. But um, that it also caused a policy increase, and the big loser from the price, you know, the, the, the huge, the, the 400% uh, price raise in the 1970s was actually consumption of oil. Today, we, while we might be, a, you know, more people on the planet and a bigger GNP, so in, in absolute volumes, we consume more oil that, um, than we did, let's say, in the 70s. But, but oil's relative place has gone down, and our, and our total fuel consumption has gone down significantly. In the 1970s, about, if we put all, you know, all together, all the energy we consumed, gas, coal, nuclear, renewables, oil was uh, above 50% of that total, that total fuel mix. Today, oil is closer to about 34% and will probably be, you know, and, and it's going down, uh, you know, every year, it's, rel it's relative share. So, so um, in the end of the day, you know, that kind of price, price spike that, oil, that OPEC initiated, it backfired for, for the yeah. oil producers themselves. And if, if you ask an oil consumer, they talk about the 70s oil crisis. You talk about, you ask Saudi Arabia, it's the 1980s when oil went below $10 a barrel. But um, I don't think that, you know, it's not that OPEC has decided not to cut back. They really can't cut back. What could they do? Cut back and let everyone else, you know, enjoy the higher prices. It's, it's really not, not an option. But how, how, go ahead, Howard. Well, Brenda is exactly correct. There are there is much less um, power for OPEC given all the alternative sources of energy, including U.S. fracked oil, which is you know relatively significant. Moreover, even in the heyday in the seventies, there was a lot of dissension about how to partition among the various countries constituting OPEC. And remember, this included some countries outside of the Middle East, like. 
Portland, Nigeria, and Venezuela. And the, so there was overcapacity, and they had to allocate it to each country the amount to be um, pumped. But that was a very argumentative discussion, and to some extent, it, the, there was enormous incentive to cheat because very often the price at one point, say, in 74 got up to about $12 a barrel. The marginal cost of pumping was $3 a barrel. Everybody had incentive to, to cheat because their revenue per barrel would be greater than their cost per barrel. And the standard story among those knowledgeable about the oil industry is that there was an enforcer named Colonel Gaddafi yep. who physically threatened the leaders of the countries who broke their share, who produced more than their share that had been agreed upon. Nevertheless, there was some cheating, but relatively little. But those who cheated you know, ran some substantial physical risks. You also have, uh, Brent, it's interesting uh, that you also have in this, uh, there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today about the role that, that I guess Turkey would like to play in this in, in trying to bring both sides back to, to the diplomatic table. Uh, what kind of influence can, can, a, can an entity like Turkey have in something like this right now? Yeah, I, I would, you know, t- Turkey... Um, Erdogan and Davito Lu in the in the you know the last ten years they had this policy of um, you know you know no no troubles with neighbors yep. and you know now Turkey's in a situation of no neighbors without troubles so <laughs> I don't know if exactly it's in its interest to actually stick into this you know this conflict and it's really I I, I don't think that between Saudi Arabia and Iran um, under current conditions when there's no um, you know, there's no adult in the playground in the Middle East. Um, there's no clear lines of, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, security and deterrence. Um, I don't think that they can really, I mean, they can maybe tone it down, but I think that they're going to continually, it's just, it's the normal way of things when you have yeah. two, you know, why are Russia and Turkey in a conflict right now? It's the same thing. When you have two big armies and two big economies next to each other, they tend to, you know, bump into each other once in a while. You know, it's not about... Uh, you know, it's it's not about a, a really a, a you know a, a, a specific um, issue. Yeah. And so, so and so, really, it sounds like what you're saying is that there really isn't uh, one entity uh, in that region of the world right now that could be that that country to kind of stand in and try and uh, kind of uh, break the deadlock or, or or bring both sides back to the table. That's well, not quite correct okay. because yeah. the U.S. If it decided that it had a foreign policy, and you know, it was, or rather than being done with foreign policy, <laughs> the U.S. by saying drawing lines and 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 not just in the sand, which are kicked away, by saying that Iran will be held to account on all the things it's agreed to, including not you know they should not be violating the agreement before it's signed more or less yeah. about shooting. IBM, ICBMs, um, and if the U.S. were seriously to enforce this by, in fact, continuing sanctions and not releasing the $100 billion, $150 billion, not clear what it is, that would actually, you know, people would take notice. So the U.S. could stop it, but under a Kerry-Obama administration with a um, very weak National Security Council, I don't understand what kind of advice National Security Council is giving to the President and the Secretary of State, the U.S. is not going to do this. So the yep. U.S. could do it. That's not an issue. But um, the U.S. 
I think President Obama will, for the next 30 days, worry about gun control, which is not yep. necessarily the highest priority issue in, in, in the Middle East. Brenda? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think Howard and I, are, we have too much agreement today. I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's not enough fun. But, uh, um, yeah, I, you know, I think that security doesn't like um, um, lack of clear lines. You know, and, 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 I, and I think that, um, in, in a sense, the administration overlearned the lesson of, uh, uh, of, of, of the U.S. presence in, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and its lack of ability to achieve goals there. You know, on one hand, when you, you know, you, you try to use force to, to, you know, military force to do things like state building and, you know, change societies yeah. and, you know, it, it just, it just, does, it, you know, it just doesn't work. On the other hand, failed states are, are, uh, are extremely dangerous. And I think that um, U.S. policies in the Middle East, you know, let's say from, from, you know, in response to the Arab Spring and, and, or, or, or what was called the Arab Spring, um, uh, was was to kind of to to go in somewhere, help to break it, but say, ah, we don't want to stay around here. This is a mess. This is dangerous. We remember what happened when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And so, so basically, we're left now in the Middle East with, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost ironic. You know, 40 years the U.S. worked to get the Soviet Union out of the Middle East, and if I'm trying to think, gee, who could matter right now? It's actually only Russia, and, the, you yeah. know, and, and it, that's un, it, it's unfathomable. I mean, we're at the beginning of 2016. <laughs> if it's 2015, someone would say, you know, who who can move anything right now in the Middle East? And that it, I mean, the, I agree with Howard. The U.S. can if it wants, but it doesn't seem to want. You know, and, and uh, um, um, it, but who actually can and seems to want is Russia. And it, it, it's almost unfathomable how, how things have changed in, in a year. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.